podcast focused on current events, faith, and the face of Mennonite peacemaking in the 21st century. I'm Hannah Heinzicker, your host for today and the executive director of the Mennonite Inc., a multimedia publication connected to Mennonite Church USA. And I'm joining this conversation today from my office in surprisingly sunny Elkhart, Indiana. I'm excited that you're joining me for our inaugural conversation. This podcast is a joint production of the Mennonite Inc. and the Peace and Justice Support Network of Mennonite Church USA. Every other Monday, we'll be releasing an interview with someone working at peacebuilding across our denomination. Jason Boone, the director of the Peace and Justice Support Network, will also be hosting some of these interviews as well. We're excited to bring you into this conversation with us. I don't know about you, but I'm a podcast junkie. They're what I listen to on my drive to and from work and on most long road trips that I embark on. I think the format of a podcast is also allowing for a really enhanced conversation that can't always come through in a print interview, no matter how hard we try. And I've only talked with two guests so far, but already I'd say that my expectations are being exceeded as far as the depth of conversation we've been able to have and the surprises that have emerged in our conversation. So I hope you'll continue to join us every Monday for a new edition of the Peace Lab. And I'm joined today by Erica Littlewolf, who is the Indigenous Visioning Circle Administrator Administrative Program Coordinator for Mennonite Central Committee Central States. That is a title. So Erica, thanks so much for joining me today and in some ways kind of being a bit of a guinea pig as we get this podcast off the ground. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. You know, that is, like I said, quite a title. So tell me a little bit about what that means. Unpack that for us. What does your work with MCC entail and what does a normal day look like for you? Um, I wouldn't say that I ever have, like, a normal working day. Um, I do work out of the North Newton office of MCC, and while I'm in the office, I'm usually answering emails, um, catching up on finances, doing phone calls, um, writing articles, uh, more of the administrative tasks. But what I do a lot more is travel, and when I travel, I'm attending churches, sometimes giving the sermon speaking during Sunday school, traveling with my coworker Karen Kaufman-Wall, and doing the Loss of Turtle Island exercise. Um, that's actually an exercise that um, takes an hour, and it shows the relationship between Europeans and Mennonites and the indigenous people of this land. Um, and I do that, and we also do presentations on the doctrine of discovery. And so... Um, I end up traveling more than I'm in the office. For sure. And what kind of drew you into this this work? I attend the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, and I believe maybe eight, seven years ago, I started hearing the term the doctrine of discovery, and more Indigenous people globally were calling the church to look into this. And so when I had originally heard the term doctrine of discovery or doctrine of Christian discovery, I decided to look more into uh, what it actually was because I had thought it was maybe a book I could read or one statement. And what it turns out to be is three different papal bulls issued out of the Catholic Church um, saying that any lands that people come across and people are not Christian, uh, considered pagan people, um, that the Christian nation that has discovered that land has the right to subjugate and make the people their um, perpetual slaves and to thus take ownership of the land. And so when I found that out, um, I continued to um, look at the root causes of that and look at what has become or what is still happening as a result of that. 
So Doctrine of Discovery was not necessarily even a concept that you were familiar with growing up, but would you say that um, you and your family would have felt the impacts of some of these these policies? Yes, exactly. I had I grew up on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation in southeastern Montana and grew up seeing um, poverty, grew up seeing addiction, grew up um, with a lot of people not having clean drinking water, uh, grew up with suicide at young ages and, and people having diabetes at young ages, not having access to healthy foods. I grew up with some of my relatives um, living in Oakland as a result of the Indian Relocation Act um, and different things like that um, that I always wondered what happened. And then during college, I became a Native American history uh, major and then learning the policies, so figuring out the policy side and then beginning to work with MCC and um, working with the church and then finding out there's actually um, a Christian underlying theme of the doctrine of discovery to all of it. So I started from living it to now being able to see where its roots are and um, feeling like I'm connecting at all points of time my own story to um, the doctrine of discovery and how it has played out. Sure. And, you know, one thing that I know surprised me as I started to learn more about the Doctrine of Discovery was that Mennonites actually um, participated in this boarding school process that kind of took Native Americans from their homes to educate them in these boarding schools, which often had really horrific practices. Um, would you say more about what you've kind of learned about about the ways Mennonites participated in this? I think a lot of my learning has actually come out of Canada with their Mennonite churches. Um, the country of Canada has gone through a truth and reconciliation process that um, required the churches bring forth documents and allowed Native people to give testimony as to what happened to them in the boarding schools. And so that's when I really became familiar with it. And then as we started researching the U.S. history um, with Mennonites, we found that there were three boarding schools and one day school at Hopi Mission School. And so I don't know a lot in particular about the Mennonite boarding schools. I know the situation overall within the U.S. is very similar to that which happened in Canada um, about boarding schools in general, meaning that children were abused, the children were taken from their homes at young ages, they were um, not allowed to speak their language, they were not allowed to participate in their culture, um, they were separated from any siblings they may have had in the same boarding school um, and were not allowed to return home. And if they did, it was during the summer months, um, but they had um, sometimes forgotten their language and found it hard to be incorporated back into their community. Um, and I know uh, Hopi Mission School is usually a hot topic with people as people have volunteered there as teachers or helping build some of the buildings. Um, and I know there's some legalities around it, but um, when I'm asked that question, like, what do I think about Hopi Mi Mission School, I, I don't think there's one answer. I think it's actually an extremely complex situation. Um, I believe um, Mennonites actually own the land that the school is on, and um, it's not a matter of a simple answer. Should it be there? No. Should it be there? Yes. 
um, it's actually far more complex than that. Um, and I think it comes down to providing appropriate education um, to the um, children that go to school there and allowing the tribe to be involved and have a say in what type of education happens. Sure. And so this is the school that's in on the reservation in Kaikatsmovi, Arizona. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And it does have this long history connected with Mennonite Voluntary Service and, and lots of pieces like that that is complex. Um, and one other story that I've been following lately that has made news is these protests that have been taking place um, with the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about this situation. Um, I know Mennonite Central Committee Central States Director Michelle Armster, with your help and some others' help, just made a statement of support for the Standing Rock Tribe. But yeah, can you talk a little bit about this situation and what's happening there and how this fits into that whole Doctrine of Discovery framework? Um, because it seems connected to me. Um. The Standing Rock Soup Tribe began a prayer camp along the Missouri River close to Cannonball, North Dakota, um, back in April. And that was because the Dakota Access Pipeline was supposed to be going underneath the Missouri River, which is the main water source for those communities and communities further south. And further underneath that is actually the Ogallala Aquifer, which is a huge aquifer. And so they were praying and protesting um, this pipeline because what we hear is that it's not if pipelines will break, it's when they will break. And, and when they do, they pollute the water. And so protecting the water from further pollution. And since April, um, they have, the camp has grown to maybe two or 3,000 people. I've heard 4,000 people. And... Um, I know Amnesty International has gone there, CPT has gone there, um, and so there's many groups, indigenous and non-indigenous, um, and many tribes sending letters of support um, towards the tribe and for the tribe. Um, and right now, um, just recently, um, some of the sacred sites were actually bulldozed, and so they had a hearing in Washington, D.C. to put a restraining order on the um, the mining company, and it actually got passed, uh, the restraining order did, but it only restricted um, building for half half of it and not on the other half. And they're awaiting a date somewhere, I think, around September 8th or 9th to hear if that will be able to continue. But what is being said is that whether that comes out in favor of the tribe or in favor of the um, mining company, Either way, it's going to be appealed. So the thought is is that the camp will still continue beyond this decision and into the winter months. And how this um, connects with the Doctrine of Discovery is the Doctrine of Discovery laid out uh, a foundation that we call the three E's, which is um, extermination of indigenous people, enslavement, um, of African people, because if we kill the people from the land, then we need a population to work the land, and the extraction of natural resources. And so with the Doctrine of Discovery, this idea that um, the land is a commodity, people are commodities, um, and technically if we look at treaty rights, uh, the Sioux people do have um, treaty rights to that land, um, and following different laws like NAGPRA, and the EPA, they were supposed to have done a study done on it, 
there is supposed to have been a survey done um, to look at those sacred sites because they are protected by law, um, but none of those things were being followed. And so it's connected. It's a modern-day reality that um, is actually super exciting to be living through. Um, it's the first time, I believe they say, since the Battle of the Little Bighorn that this many Native people have gathered in one place. And so um, I find it both um, sad, makes my heart sad, but at the same time it excites me um, to see the world coming together and the Native world coming together and that we are able to be alive in such a time as this. For sure. So have you had the chance to go out there and, and be present, or is that on your radar, something you'll get to do? I haven't been able to, um, and it's still on my radar. Um, and we have responded as MCC Central States with a letter of support, and we're just looking to the future because I, I tend to think um, usually when there's a lot of hype and there's a lot of media, then there's a lot of people there. But I imagine if um, the protest goes on. I imagine the people will um, wane and resources will wane. So I'm kind of anticipating a time like that that I would probably go. You know, and if people are wanting to, you know, if they're following this story and wanting to get involved or show their support somehow, are there things that they can do or ways they could contribute even if they can't be physically present there? Yeah, there is um, a sacred Stone Camp, I believe, on Facebook. Um, I'm actually not on Facebook, but if you go there, I am told they update um, their page regularly and put out lists of supplies that are needed. Um, there's a way to actually donate money, and um, I believe they list different Congress people um, uh, that you can contact by phone or by letter. Um, there's petitions you can sign. And they were even saying there's, like, some memes and certain social media things that you can post. And I'm not familiar with the social media world, but I know there's things you can do. <laughs> That's right. All sorts of kind of organic ways to get involved. Yeah. Yep. But, yeah. Well, you know, one thing that obviously with Doctrine of Discovery, with all of this work, the theme of land keeps kind of coming up as important. And, and what does it mean to own land? And, and you know, that has been a theme for European Mennonites, too. There's been a long connection, you know, people fleeing religious persecution and coming and finding farmland. And now some some Mennonites are beginning to ask questions about, you know, we weren't the first owners of this land. Um, this belonged to indigenous people before us. And I wonder if you think about this idea of land ownership, how has that shifted and how has this idea of ownership played into all of this? Maybe that's a kind of nebulous question. Um, I know when we present a lot, um, it's interesting because people always want to know what they can do. And so we encourage people to go back and see, like, where they got their land from and to research some of the original people that have lived there. And people tend to, I, we've heard, you know, like, no one lived there, but we have to remember that people were nomadic. So who roamed through there if they didn't live through there. Um, and also just encouraging people to look at that and also um, encouraging people as a reminder, you know, for the most part, Native people aren't asking um, people to move back to Europe. So not thinking in those super black and white ways of thinking like, oh, God, if we look at our land, then we have to leave. But also realizing at the same time that when we do some of our sharing, there's a fabulous quote by this uh, Mennonite guy named Paul Erb, 
and he says that we, like, as Mennonites, European Mennonites, we have to realize that although we may not have directly contributed to the loss of people's lives, we still have benefited from the taking of land and continue today to um, benefit from it. So I think in thinking of that, how can we begin to look at history differently and recognize that maybe if Mennonites have gotten the land from the railroads, where did the railroads get the land from? And so not looking at it um, only in terms of fleeing persecution, but also that perhaps we have persecuted other people and not known it. But intentional or not, the effects are still yeah, there. Yeah, the effects are still there, and they're not only in history. They're happening today. Right. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about um, the Native Mennonite Ministries organization connected to Mennonite Church USA. Many of our listeners would perhaps be coming out of this denominational context and I'm wondering, you know, this seems like this is an organization, a constituency group that's represented the Native American voice within the denomination that's now going through some real struggles, especially with the loss of many of the historic Native American congregations who have left Mennonite Church USA when Gulf States Mennonite Conference had a vote about that. Right. And I wonder, you know, as you're thinking about the future of Native American voices in Mennonite Church USA, what do you think are kind of the next steps for that organization or or the ways it will continue to evolve? Right. Um, yeah, it has been a sad process. I know in Kansas City um, we were figuring that there may have been three Native people in attendance at that conference. And so it's been sad to see. And there was not a space for a Native Mennonite Ministries booth as a lot of the churches did leave with that decision. And I think the hardest part for me was that we can, we're can we thought of as the invisible population. And for me, I'm curious how many Mennonites realize that we usually are invisible, but we were very invisible in tangible ways at that conference. And so thinking through that, and for me personally, and not tied to my just very own personal opinion, is there's, it's, there's very much a lot of sadness in what has happened with Native Mennonite Ministries, and I tie that to the historical sadness of how Mennonites have engaged with Native people and Christians in general. And so with me, it, in a way, it feels good to see some of that die because then it allows opportunity for something new to be built, for there to be reconciliation or a new way of um, engaging with Native people. Um, and so I feel excited about that because I think what it is is it's a call for something different. It might not be a verbal call, but it has happened. Um, churches have left, and so I feel like it's a natural call for something new to come. And I don't know what that is, um, but I'm excited for it. Sure. Are you starting to see any rumblings or things springing up that might point to something new coming? I feel it personally within my work, um, just exposing the doctrine of discovery, because um, I know as a Native person, when I was growing up and I would see, oh, all this alcoholism or, you know, have racist remarks made toward me, and I would internalize them and think there was something wrong with me. And by exposing the mm. doctrine of discovery, I began to see, like, it's a whole system, and I can't take personal what a system has set up for me to function in. And so once I feel like that's exposed, then I'm like, oh, this is why we have this problem, or this is why we have this problem. 
which helps for me expose solutions and the ability to be creative. So with me and the work that I do, I feel like just with the doctrine of discovery alone, it allows space to relieve some of that pressure that as a Native person we feel that we have to carry. And so um, it allows for new ways of the church being able to enter into um, good and right relationships with Native people. Right. It sort of gives language to the experiences that people have had all along. Exactly. And And it's good to not have to be a Native person that carries that history. It's nice to have non-Native people know the history, and so then we have a place to start. Sure. Well, you know, so this podcast, we decided to name it Peace Lab, and and what we're trying to do is explore different ways of talking about peace across the Mennonite Church and defining that very broadly. But I wonder, you know, if you reflect on that word, peace, we kind of throw it around a lot, but what does working for peace or peacemaking, what does that mean to you? Ooh, that's a good question. I, I was thinking of the word peace, and I don't know that it has any meaning for me. <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah, I feel like at an individual level, it's. Um, I read somewhere, you know, it's like being comfortable uh, with your situation, and instead of always trying to change it, like being, and but then at the same time, still trying to change it. So I think of that, and then I think within my work, I think it takes on different forms, and for me, it's just ed- it's the education, like being able to share, and also being able to learn. And so um, I think every time I travel around and I see older Mennonites who have farmed their whole life or I see people that have made a living off of farming and I imagine myself being in that position and being given all this information and perhaps feeling guilty, but yet being willing to take it in and being willing to grapple with it. And somewhere in all that conflict, I feel peace. And so for me, maybe it's it's a feeling. And it's that feeling and that willingness for people to be uncomfortable and continue to question, even though it may contradict their whole entire reality. Yeah. So if you think about, you've kind of mentioned several resources throughout this conversation, but if there are people listening or there are Christians or Mennonites who want to learn more about the Doctrine of Discovery or they want to find ways to get engaged and educated, would you have an invitation for those people? What resources should they check out or what would be a good way to get started? Right. There's a website, um, dofdmenno.org or .com, um, and there's a DVD on there that can be watched. And also just contacting MCC Central States We have a resource list we give out to people of different books to read, um, different videos to watch, and a lot of them you just stream free on the Internet. Um, We have some timelines of how the Doctrine of Discovery has played out in U.S. history and then the Mennonite history input into that. But, yeah, we have resources, resource lists, and a lot of it requires – I mean, no one's going to do it for you. And so we have – listed the resources, but it's people's own drive to look into those resources and read those books. And so I would say it's people's own intention, their own, whatever it is that makes them want to learn more. I I can't learn more for someone else. Someone else is going to have to do it. Sure, they have to take that they first step. They have to step. take that initiative. And we have tried, we've made a resource list, so 
should make the initiative a little easier. That's right. If you can navigate there, then that's a start. Okay, well, so to close, what's most on your mind this week? Either a challenge or a highlight or a story? What's what's kind of keeping you preoccupied these days? I think um, the thing that both uh, makes my heart hurt and at the same time my head cannot understand is what has happened at the Dakota Access Pipeline with the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe having submitted surveys to the court of their sacred burial grounds and then the day later having bulldozers go in and bulldoze the very site where these remains were. And I understand the need that people feel for development and this idea of money and the idea of oil, and yet I cannot understand why it is okay to remove human bodies from the earth and think that it doesn't hurt someone. And to look at people that are trying to defend this and keep their relatives in the ground and look at them and say they're violent or look at them and say you're scared of them when in fact you're the one perpetuating the violence. And so I don't I don't understand. And I said just the other day, it makes me wonder. I mean, culturally, we get buried, we don't get cremated. And so I keep thinking, wow, it makes me want to be cremated because I don't want my bones dug up again. And it brings mm. me right back to this idea of the doctrine of discovery where if you don't consider people human, then of course you can do whatever you want. And at the same time, I think, wow, how would someone feel if I took a bulldozer to your relative's graveyard and dug things up? Like, what kind of feelings would you have, but yet you cannot have compassion for the very people in which you're doing that to? And so I just wonder what is going on in people's minds or or what is allowing them to distance themselves from it so much that they're able to do it. And so both a personal struggle that I hold like deeply in my heart and yet also trying to understand in my mind what allows things to happen. I mean, systemically I know how it happens, but individually I'm, I'm curious um, about what people are thinking or when they're doing the bulldozing. Yeah. So really... This doctrine of discovery, it's the theme for all of your work and for the things that are keeping you preoccupied. It is. It is. Well, thanks, Erica, so much for talking with me and and joining us on this beginning episodes of the Peace Lab. Thank you for having me. And thank all of you out there listening for joining us for this conversation. We hope you'll tune in again in two weeks for Jason Boone's interview with author, blogger, and peace pastor Marty Troyer from Houston, Texas. And you can always listen to the Peace Lab at www.themennonite.org and www.pjsn.org. Or you can find us and follow us on SoundCloud. A big thank you to Mennonite Mission Network, the mission agency of Mennonite Church USA, who sponsored this episode of Peace Lab, and to David Fisher Fast, who developed and recorded our theme song. We'll talk with you again next time on the Peace Lab podcast.